Let's take our Bibles and turn together to Hebrews chapter 11. I'm going to read uh, from Genesis 12, and then we'll read from Hebrews 11. While you're looking that up, just one word uh, this morning. uh, Philadelphia is very gracious to us in allowing us to have parking uh, facilities on the streets adjacent to the church. We're very grateful to that, for that. And uh, you'll notice as you've parked that you're parking over the bike lanes and that Sunday is the day in which bikers in Philly go out to exercise uh, because there's less traffic and uh, it's their day off. And um, you can love your neighbor in Philly if when you're exiting your vehicle, he says very officiously, when you're exiting your vehicle, if you would look in your mirror and just double check that there isn't a a bicycle about to smash into your door. The damage to your door would be one thing, to the cyclist would be something else. So, um, this is a friendly word to all of us. Love your neighbor on the bike by making sure that you don't open the door and knock them off the bike. Well, we're going to read from Genesis 12, and you don't need to look that up. I'll read it to you, just a few verses, and then we'll read from Hebrews. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And then from... Hebrews chapter 11, verse 8. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out, not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise as a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. There is one name common to the world's three most populous faiths, Christianity, Judaism, and Islam. All lay claim to being Abrahamic religions. For our purposes, the name of Abraham is mentioned around 74 times in the New Testament Scripture. And in this catalog of faith we have here in chapter 11 of Hebrews, Abraham gets one-third of the space. In other words, he is most significant in this whole issue of faith. Abraham is the only person in the Bible who is explicitly called God's friend in Isaiah 41 and James 2. He's already appeared in this letter. For example, in chapter 2, the divine Son has acted in salvation not for angels, but on behalf of the sons or the seed of Abraham. In chapter 6, Abraham is identified as the one to whom God made promises about the Messiah and confirmed those promises with an oath God swore by Himself. 
In chapter 7, Abraham pays tithes to the priest king Melchizedek, uh, who in turn blesses him. And here's how it's put, Melchizedek blessed the one who had the promises. That's Abraham. Abraham is identified as the man who has, who carries, who bears the promises of God. And now in chapter 11, one-third of this catalog of faith is taken up with this man, Abraham. Let me put it in this context. The author has shown us that faith is the instrument through which God works to bring blessing into the lives of fallen men and women from the very beginning of human existence. So if you were to ask, is there one common theme that runs through the whole story of God's relationship with fallen humanity from the time of the fall to our time and beyond to the end of history, what would it be? The answer would be it is the faith. Faith is the commonality. Faith in the promise of God, faith in the Word of God. Believing God is the key link. So that even though I am not, as far as I know, a direct descendant of Abraham according to the flesh, I am nonetheless a child of Abraham because I share the faith of Abraham. One of the things that the Apostle Paul says in his book in Romans chapter 4, he says this, that Abraham is the father of all them that believe. Uh, in, he goes on to say this in Galatians. He, he says that we are, we who belong to Christ, we are all Abraham's offspring and heirs according to the promise. And it's of Abraham that that defining definition or statement about faith is made. Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. So the first clear statement that the way in which the instrumentality through which God declares sinful, unrighteous people to be righteous in his eyes is faith in his promises. So that's the introduction. As we look at the story of Abraham as it's introduced here in verses 8 to 10, I want you to notice we are, we're finding the focus on Abraham as he was summoned by God, as he sojourned on earth, and as he sought or looked for a city. Let's, let's look at those three elements together. First of all, Abraham was summoned by God. If you read verse 8, you'll see the accent of the text falls on the obedience of Abraham as he's moved by faith. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called. And as you read that, I want to take up that last word first. It's this word called because his life was altered by a divine summons, the call of God. We read it from chapter 12. The Lord said to Abraham, go out from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And that verb to call is used very frequently in the Bible, in the New Testament particularly, to denote two things, two elements. One, God's choice. There are those who are called by God, God's choice, and secondly, God's 
command. God's choice, God's command are captured in this word to call. Theologically, we distinguish between two aspects or two kinds of call. We talk theologically about the general call of the gospel. That is that wherever somebody is sharing the Christian faith with a friend in a coffee bar or from a pulpit, however they're doing it, uh, whenever they're sharing the gospel, the people who are hearing, the person who is hearing, is by virtue of the fact that you are sharing the good news of the gospel, being called by the gospel to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and thereby to be saved. It's through that work of generally calling people as we share from the Scriptures the message of salvation that God is pleased to do His work. But not everyone who hears really hears. Not everyone who hears your words, not everyone who's in your congregation as you speak or across from you in the, in the coffee bar as you're talking to them and explaining the Bible to them, not everyone is going to respond to what you say. And so the word call is used in another way. It's, we, we refer to it as effectual calling, the, the effectual call of God, in which God's people, His elect, not only hear the words that God is saying, but the command, the summons is delivered to them, and with it, along with it, is communicated to the individual the power to respond to the summons. That's what Jesus is alluding to when He says, many are called, but few are chosen. That's what He's thinking about when He thinks about people who are, who, who are unresponsive. He says they are dead. They're spiritually dead, but there is a moment where the dead hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear live. There may be many who hear the voice of the preacher or the voice of the individual Christian who do not hear and live. But there are some who, the, by the power of God, hear, spiritually hear, engage with what, you, what is going on, and those that hear live spiritually. So that when Paul is writing to the Romans in Romans chapter 8, he says there's an unbroken line between God predestinating people, calling people, justifying people, and then glorifying people. That's effectual calling. And that's the kind of calling that Abraham received. You see, Abraham wasn't a religious man, or he was a religious man, but his religion was not the religion of the true God. In fact, Joshua said at the end of Josh, the, the book of Joshua, chapter 24, long ago your fathers lived beyond the Euphrates, the river, and they served other gods. Abraham, we know, came from Ur of the Chaldees. In the 19th century, if you were in church in the 19th century, not this church, of course, we've been really holy all the time, but uh, there were churches in the 19th century, and if you'd gone and somebody was preaching on this, they would have said to you something like this, you know, we, we've absolutely no idea that there was a place called Ur, you know, nobody's, nobody's ever actually found any evidence that there was a man called Abraham, far less a place called Ur of the Chaldees. 
until the archaeologists found her of the Chaldees. Uh, there it was in the region where the Bible said it was, and what they discovered was a large urban city of 300,000 people. They found their homes that had underfloor heating. They, they found, they found a, 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 a manuscript, not a manuscript, they found a tablet in which somebody was working out a problem in trigonometry. At the time it was discovered in the late 19th century by the archaeologists, the same problem was attracting the minds of people in Oxford and Cambridge. It was remarkable. It was an urban center. But it was also a center of idolatry. It was a place where people worshipped idols. The, the moon, particularly, was one of the gods that they worshipped. That's what Joshua is saying. Abraham, along with everybody else there in Ur of the Chaldees, worshipped other gods. So when we think of this man Abraham, I don't want to just think but right at the very beginning that this man is any particular impulse towards the things of God, or that there is any kind of default setting in his heart toward, to favorability towards the things of God. He was like most people today. He was dead in sin. In fact, the New Testament says about Abraham, he was a Gentile, because there, there were no Jews yet, obviously. So he's a Gentile. He's, he's a pagan. He belongs to the Goyim, to the nations of the world. He, he's, one of the, he's one of these people, and many of us identify with Abraham because we don't have those kind of roots either. So what happened to this man Abraham? This ordinary man, this man of whom Isaiah the prophet could say to, when he's talking to Israel, remember where you came from. Remember the quarry out of which you were dug. Remember Abraham, your father. In other words, don't get all hoity-toity. That's an English expression, which kind of makes sense. Don't get all high and mighty about yourself. Don't take yourself too seriously. Remember where you came from. You came from Abraham. What happened to this man? Well, the Scripture tells us that Abraham received a divine epiphany. Stephen, the first martyr, tells us in Acts 7, the God of glory appeared to our father, Abraham. That appearance, that epiphany, that manifestation of God is not something that you and I get in our lives. Few have gotten it. Perhaps Moses had an epiphany, a revelation, an appearance of God. Perhaps Isaiah the prophet in Isaiah chapter 6, when he went into the temple and saw the Lord high and lifted up, had an epiphany, an appearance, a manifestation of God. Peter, James, and John on the Mount of Transfiguration, when Jesus was transfigured before them and, and his, his humanity, his divinity rather, shone through his humanity, he became, as it were, translucent with the brightness of the light of the Shekinah glory of God there before their eyes. Peter is able to say about that experience, we were eyewitnesses, eyewitnesses of His majesty when He received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was born to Him from the majestic glory, you are my Son. The Apostle Paul, on the road to Damascus, he had such an epiphany, a manifestation, an appearance 
of the glory of God, the God of glory, appeared to your father Abraham, and it transformed him. Our, our experience is a lot more pedestrian than that. I was going to write a lot more Presbyterian than that, but more pedestrian, more pedestrian was the word I chose. We don't get to see that the way they do, but nonetheless, when the light goes on in your head, when you are brought to that point where you're able to say, Jesus is Lord, it is because the same Holy Spirit who led Abraham has led you to Jesus Christ, who unites you to God the Father. So that the Apostle Paul can say about his own experience and say that it's the experience of every believer according to a different fashion, but nonetheless is real, that we come to see the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Abraham received a divine epiphany, and Abraham received a divine call. What do we mean by he was called? Well, this is what we mean by it. God breathed His Holy Spirit into Abraham's being. That's what it means to be called in this effectual way. Because where the Spirit of God invades our minds and our understanding, He brings illumination. He brings light. He is light. He brings light. He enlightens. So as where before we did not understand the things of God, at that moment we begin to, to see it make sense. We don't receive full light all at once, of course. It, it starts slowly. It begins perhaps negligibly, but it grows in time as, as the bits fit together, as, as your vision begins to get clearer and clearer. St. Basil of Caesarea, one of the early church fathers, puts it like this, if we are illumined by the divine power, that's the Holy Spirit, and fix our eyes, the eyes of faith, on the beauty of the image of the invisible God, that's the Lord Jesus. And through the image, Jesus, are led to the indescribable beauty of the source, that's the Father. Then it's because we are inseparably joined to the Spirit of knowledge. And the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, gives those who love the vision of truth, the power which enables them to see the image that is Christ. And this power that is the Spirit is Himself. In other words, God operates to illumine you, to bring light to your eyes, to help you to see it, and He brings you to look to Christ. That's why Jesus said about this man Abraham, Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. The Holy Spirit brought this man to get a glimpse of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, and he saw it, Jesus said, and was glad. 
It's a remarkable statement, because no one knows the Father except the Son, and no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit, Jesus said. So what does the Holy Spirit do? He gives light. He gives faith. Faith is the gift of the Holy Spirit. When it says that Abraham believed, you must understand, he didn't just do what any of us can do. This faith that he had was saving faith. He believed in Christ. He believed the promise of God, which was Christ. The Holy Spirit gave him the gift of living faith. And so when God said to him, get out from your country, from your kindred, from your father's house, he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive. He believed God. And he obeyed and he went. As God said to him, I want you to leave your dearest comforts, your nearest relations, your native soil, and go out in obedience to me, doing what I've called you to do. And he went out, not knowing where he was going. And you see, here is the practical evidence of real faith. The practical evidence of faith is not so much that I say that I have faith, or I am a person of faith, or that I believe. The practical evidence of faith is the obedience of faith. The obedience of faith is the observable and objective evidence of the work of the Holy Spirit in giving us the gift of faith. It's when I leave all and follow Him. The Bible says, faith works by love. All of our obedience comes from our love for God, and our love for God comes from our persuasion about God's love for us. I love Him because He first loved me. That's, that's the biblical order of events. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. It is the persuasion of being loved by God that strengthens the faith that is given to me by the Holy Spirit and enables me then to obey God in what God calls me to do. And when Abraham obeyed and went out, he subjected all his will, all his interests, all his investments in doing what God wanted him to do. But secondly, Abraham not only was summoned by God, Abraham was a sojourner on earth. Look what it says in the next verse. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents. What is this land, by the way? It's the land of Canaan. That's where he went. That's where God took him. You say, oh, yes, Canaan. Canaan was the land that eventually the, the people of Israel took over and, and inhabited and built their towns and cities and raised their children and so on. Yes, that was, that was the promised land. Was it? It was promised. That was the land God promised to Abraham. But as we'll see, that was not the end of the story. Because Abraham, when he got there, didn't settle there. Abraham saw his entire life as a pilgrimage towards God's presence. It had been promised to him. But he sojourned there. He lived like a lodger 
in the promised land, as if the promised land that God said was His actually belonged to somebody else. He lived as a foreigner and a stranger, a temporary sojourner, a resident alien. Now, this kind of language, this is not language we're familiar with. We feel quite at home where we are. We feel quite tied to the world as we know it. We feel connected to to the earth and to the place where we are and to the people around us. It comes as one of the major challenges to the Christian's way of thinking about themselves, that we begin to think of ourselves the way Abraham thought of himself. I mean, here's this man and... There were two reasons, I suppose, why he was able to live as a stranger in the land. One, because having God is enough. You don't need any more if you've got God, and he had God, and that was enough. And secondly, the land at that point was filled with evil people. Wickedness had run. It had to run its course. The iniquity of the Amorites was not yet full, and that some hundreds of years later, when it was full, then God would judge the people of that land. This wasn't that time for Abraham. But that wasn't the big reason either. Abraham believed in the promise of God that through one of his offspring, all the nations of the earth would be blessed. He would be his descendant through Isaac and Jacob, our Emmanuel, God with us. And so Abraham sojourned in the land of promise. It's very interesting, you know, that uh, in this list of faith, there is one very clear absentee from the list. If you think about it for a moment, it's quite strange. Yeshua, Joshua, Joshua the first, let's call him. The one that comes after Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, that one. The one who led the people into Canaan isn't on the list. Why? Because that wasn't the end that God had ordained. They had to get into the land. They had to settle in the land. That was part of the process of preparation for the end. But it wasn't the end. It wasn't really the reason why Abraham left his home comforts and his familial lands, the place where he'd grown up where his heart lay, as it were, from a, from a human point of view. That's not why he left. He left for another place, as we'll see in a moment. He had something else in his mind. And so when he got to Canaan, he lived as a stranger and a foreigner. How do I identify then with Abraham? Well, here's how I do it. What has God promised you? You read your Bible And you stand back after you've read the Bible and you ask yourself the question, what has God promised me? In the Beatitudes, when Jesus is telling us about blessedness, what does he say about one of the blessings that is going to be the child of God's? That we will inherit the earth. The saints will inherit the earth. The saints will judge angels. The saints will rule over the earth with the Lord Jesus Christ in the eternal kingdom. There will be a renewed, purified, transformed, 
fit for purpose, new heavens and new earth, made ready for us, made suitable for us. That's the destiny of the people of God. Wherever you go around here, wherever you go as you do your foreign travels, whatever sights you see, whatever wonders of nature you behold, understand this. It is already yours, promised to you, guaranteed to you. It is yours. It has been made for you and will be remade. And that, that remake will be beyond comprehension in wonder. And to be a Christian is to be God's elect strangers in the world, knowing that this is not, this as we see it at the moment, is not our final destination. We walk over what is ours every day, while other people possess it, who will one day be dispossessed of it. This is what the psalmist is saying in Psalm 73. As he looked around himself, he saw, he tells us, the prosperity of the wicked. He heard the scoffing of their voices. He felt their malice against him. He saw them always at ease, increasing in riches, until he went into the sanctuary of God. And he says, and then I understood their end, their end. Their end is to slip, slide away into everlasting ruin. But he says, there I recognize I am continually with you. Your right hand holds me. You guide me with your counsel. Afterward, you will receive me into glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? Nothing on earth I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forevermore. Abraham would have echoed those words. He lived as a stranger and an alien here. That's how we live. Let me, let me put it like this. He goes on, we're told in the next, the next verse how he thought, how he reasoned. Abraham was looking for a city. That's why. Abraham was looking for a city. He was looking forward, expectantly waiting for a city that has foundations whose builder, architect, designer, and builder is God. He knew that Canaan was only assigned to Abraham and his descendants to be a place of of trial, a temporary place, but also a place that was a pledge of something better, something bigger, something greater, an inheritance, an eternal inheritance that was kept for him. And all of the saints of the Old Testament realized this. David understood it. He says in Psalm 39, I'm a sojourner with you and a stranger like all of my fathers. The writer in 1 Chronicles 29, he knew it. We are all of us strangers before you and sojourners as all our fathers were. Our days on earth are like a shadow and there is no abiding, no staying here. Beloved, there is no staying here. In a hundred years, there may well still be people worshiping in this building, and they will most likely have no memory of any of us in this room. There's no abiding. There's no remaining here. 
Everything about here is alterable, changeable. The seasons change. There's summer, and then there's winter, part one, part two, and part three. <laughs> there's, 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 I'm just being culturally sensitive here. There's heat, and there's cold, cold, and more cold. I, we are born, we grow, we start to deteriorate till we die. Change and decay in all around we see. This life is changeable. It is mutable. Nothing remains the same. There is no stability to human existence. One little defect, one little error in the way your system works leads to illness and death. That's the tragedy. It is the human tragedy. You say, I didn't come to church to be reminded about the human tragedy. This is the only place you can talk about human tragedy with any degree of hope that beyond it there is life. Anywhere else, it's the end of the conversation. It is not the end of the conversation here. Not in this place. Abraham looked forward to a city that had foundations. By that he meant here is a stable place. Here is somewhere that is immutable because it takes on the nature of the God who made it, designed it, built it. From all eternity, God has been working on the design and building of the new heavens and the new earth. The plans have been made. All the energy and effort is ready to be unleashed. And that renewal project, when the old is consumed by fire and in the fire is refined and remade and reformed and rebirthed, God's tomorrow, it is a tomorrow like nothing you can compare. And the architect and builder is God himself. Abram was looking forward to that. He had the first fruits of the Spirit, a living hope in his heart. He believed in the eternal life and rest with God that was to come as a reality. And so do we. Whenever we sit at the Lord's table and we take the wine, and the wine gives us that little, or it, it should, a kick of, uh, of pleasure, we're to think about the pleasures that are in store. When we take the piece of bread that nourishes us, we're to think of the nourishment and everlasting life there is in store. It's part of the way in which God feeds us, nourishes us, brings home to us that His Word is true. His Word is real. He confirms it. Did I say there would be joy? Drink the cup. Did I say there would be nourishment? Take the bread. Remind yourself, that's what's coming in the promises and purposes of God. And that's what God taught Abraham. When the God of glory appeared to him on the other side of the Euphrates, he taught him about something that went beyond reason. Reason is good as far as it will take you, but it cannot take you into the realm of a reality that is bigger than we have ever comprehended or thought. Where did Abraham expect to find that city? Not in Canaan. Not 
in the earthly bit of real estate there in the Middle East called the Promised Land. He understood that that city was beyond. It was the heavenly city. It was the city of God. The city that had foundations that is solid, stable, immutable, eternal. What he saw is what John tells us he saw when the Spirit showed him the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, and its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. When John saw that city, when he saw there was no temple in that city, for the temple is the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb, and the city had no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light. And by its light, the nations walk, and the kings of the earth bring their glory and their, their achievements into it to be enjoyed by its inhabitants. That's the city of God. That's Zion. We are marching upward to Zion, the beautiful city of God. And we nightly pitch our fragile, weary tent a day's march nearer home. And what a home that is. Abraham was looking for a city. That's why he lived in tents. He lived with tents with his son and his grandson and their family. He passed it on to them that the reality that we were waiting for, looking for, was not an earthly hill, city on a hill. The city on the hill was no earthly nation, no earthly power, no earthly institution. It was the city of God and nothing more. And beloved, your real citizenship as a believer is in heaven where we wait a Savior who will come and change these bodies and make them like His glorious body. And then we'll change this earth, this universe, and make it glorious for us to live with Him forever. That's our destiny. And it's our destiny to go out into the world as those who have heard the call of God, as those who are living as aliens and strangers here, living in the world, having relationships with the people of the world, contributing the best we can to the, to the well-being of our society, doing all we can to make sure that those that we come in contact with are loved as we, as we love them as our neighbors in Jesus Christ, but knowing this is not it. We're looking for a city. Mount Zion, fading is the worldling's pleasure, all their boasted pomp and show, solid joys and lasting treasure, none but Zion's children. No, we're marching to Zion, the beautiful city of God. Let's pray. Lord, as you remind us of our status here, you've also reminded us of our destiny there. We pray that you would stir us up, Lord, to live godly lives in the midst of a perverse generation not being diverted, but living with that same kind of tension that Abraham did as a stranger, 
as a foreigner, contributing what he could to the people among whom he lived. But always that spirit of disconnectedness because he looked for the city of God. May we learn from him. May we follow the commands and designs of the New Testament as it calls us to live in by faith in that way. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.